This is your host, Delwar Malarkey, coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. The time is 3.30 exactly, and that's in the a.m., of course, in the morning. And uh, I'm sitting here. Uh, Ted isn't here today. We're with guest producer Jessica. And uh, hey, Jess, say hi. All right, she said hi. And... Uh, Ted's actually got a pretty darn good reason for not being here. He is on his honeymoon. Um, he uh, just got married, and so he and his new husband are in Hawaii for uh, probably just a, a week. Although, I don't know, uh, Hawaii sounds pretty nice this time of year, so we may see if they ever come back. <laughs> um, so congratulations to you, Ted. That uh, that ceremony was absolutely lovely, and... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm so happy I got to be a part of that wedding. I've, I've known Ted for, God, about 10 years now. So, just so happy for you, but enjoy Hawaii. So today I've got just one longer story for you. And uh, I know we're, we're breaking format again like we did last week. But um, I think you'll forgive me for this because um, this is uh, one of the great stories in modern literature. And in fact... Um, None other than James Joyce himself, um, one of the single most important literary figures of the modern era, at least in English, um, said that this was the greatest story of all time. So that's pretty high praise, and uh, I wonder if it'll, it'll hold up for you as the greatest story of all time, um, because James Joyce certainly thought it was, and that alone makes it definitely worth reading or at least listening to. So our author today is none other than Lev Tolstoy himself, the great master of the two epic novels, War and Peace and Anna Karenina. And though these two novels are known for their complexity and depth of characters, what a lot of people don't know is that in the latter half of Tolstoy's life, he focused on writing short, moralistic stories. And this is definitely one of those. Um, so go ahead and um, lean back, kick your feet up, and uh, relax, and enjoy the story. And this is called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? 1. An elder sister came from the town to visit her younger sister in the country. This elder sister was married to a merchant and the younger to a peasant in the village. The two sisters sat down for a talk over a cup of tea and the elder started boasting about the superiority of town life. With all its comforts, the fine clothes her children wore, the exquisite food and drink, the skating, parties, and visits to the theater. The younger sister resented this, and in turn scoffed at the life of a merchant's wife and sang the praises of her own life as a peasant. I wouldn't care to change my life for yours, she said. I admit mine is dull, but at least we have no worries. You live in grander style, but you must do a great deal of business or you'll be ruined. You know the proverb. Loss is gain's elder brother. One day you are rich, and the next you might find yourself out on the street. Here in the country we don't have those ups and downs. A peasant's life may be poor, but it's long. Although we may never be rich, we'll always have enough to eat. Then the elder sister said her piece. Enough to eat indeed, with nothing but those filthy pigs and calves. What do you know about nice clothes and good manners? However hard your good husband slaves away, you'll spend your lives in the muck and that's where you'll die. And the same goes for your children. Well, what of it? The younger sister retorted. That's how it is here. But at least we know where we are. We don't have to crawl to anyone, and we're afraid of no one. 
but you and the town are surrounded by temptations. All may be well one day, the next the devil comes along and tempts your husband with cards, women, and drink, and then you're ruined. It does happen, doesn't it? Pachom, the younger sister's husband, was lying over the stove listening to the women's chatter. It's true what you say, he said. Take me. Ever since I was a youngster, I've been too busy tilling the soil to let that kind of nonsense enter my head. My only grievance is that I don't have enough land. Give me enough of that, and I'd fear no one, not even the devil himself. The sisters finished their tea, talked a little longer about dresses, cleared away the tea things, and went to bed. But the devil had been sitting behind the stove and had heard everything. He was delighted that a peasant's wife had led her husband to boast that if he had enough land, he would fear no one, not even the devil. Good, the devil thought. I'll have a little game with you. I shall see that you have plenty of land, and that way I'll get you into my clutches. 2. Not far from the village lived a lady with a small estate of about 300 acres. She had always been on good terms with the peasants and had never ill-treated them. But then she had taken on an older soldier to manage her estate, and he proceeded to harass the peasants by constantly imposing fines. No matter how careful Pachom was, one of his horses might strain to the lady's oats, or a cow might sometimes wander into her garden, or some calves might venture out onto her meadows. Every time this happened, he would have to pay a fine. Pachom would pay up, and then he would go and swear at his family and beat them. All that summer, Pachom had to put up with a great deal from that manager, so he welcomed winter when it came, and his cattle had to be kept in the shed. Although he begrudged the fodder, at least he wouldn't have to worry about them straying. That winter, word got round that the lady wanted to sell some of her land, and that the innkeeper on the highway was trying to agree on a price with her. The peasants took this news very badly. If that innkeeper gets his hands on the land, he'll start slapping even more fines on us than the manager. But we can't survive without it. We all depend on it for our living. So a few peasants, in the name of the village commune, begged the lady not to sell any of her land to the innkeeper and to let them buy it, offering her a better price. The lady agreed. Then the members of the commune thought of buying the whole estate. They met once, they met twice, but no progress was made. The devil had set them at loggerheads, and there was nothing they could agree upon. In the end, they decided to buy the land in separate lots, each according to what he could afford. The lady agreed to this as well. One day, Pachom learned that one of his neighbors was buying about 50 acres and that the lady had taken half payment in cash, allowing the man one year to pay the balance. This made Pachom very envious. They'll buy up all the land, he thought, and I'll be left with nothing. So he conferred with his wife. Everyone's buying land, he said. We must get hold of 20 acres, or thereabouts. If we don't, we won't be able to live. What with that manager bleeding us white with fines. So they racked their brains as to how they could buy some of the land. They had a hundred rubles saved up, so that by selling a foal and half their bees, by sending one of their sons out to work for someone who paid wages in advance, and borrowing from a brother-in-law, they managed to scrape together half the money. Then Pachom took the money, chose about thirty acres of partly wooded land, and went off to the lady to see if he could strike a deal. He managed to get the thirty acres. They shook hands on it, and Pachon paid a deposit. Then they went into the town and signed the deeds, Pachon paying half cash down and pledging to settle the balance within two years. And so Pachon now had land. He borrowed money for seeds and sowed the newly bought land. 
The harvest was excellent. Within a year, he had repaid both the lady and his brother-in-law. Now he was a landowner, in the full sense of the word. He plowed and sowed his own fields, reaped his own hay, cut his own timber, and could pasture his cattle on his own land. Whenever he rode out to plow the land, which was now his forever, or to inspect his young corn and meadows, he was filled with joy. He felt that the grass that grew and the flowers that bloomed were different from any other grass and flowers. Before, when he had ridden over that land, it had seemed the same as any other, but now it was something quite special. 3. So Pachon lived a landowner's life, and he was happy. And in fact, all would have been well had other peasants not trespassed on his cornfields and meadows. He spoke to them very politely, but they took no notice. Herdsmen let their cows stray onto his meadows. Then horses wandered into his corn on their way home from night pasture. Again and again, Pachon drove them out without taking further action, but in the end, he lost his patience and complained to the district court. He knew very well that the peasants weren't doing it deliberately, but because they were short on land. But still he thought, I can't let this go on. Before long, they'll have destroyed all I have. I must teach them a lesson. So he taught them a lesson in court. Then another, making several of them pay fines. Pachom's neighbors resented this and once again began to let their cattle stray onto his land, this time on purpose. One night, someone managed to get into Pachom's wood and felled about ten young lime trees for their bark. Next day, when Pachom was riding through his wood, he suddenly noticed something white on the ground. He went nearer and saw tree trunks lying all around, stripped of their bark with the stumps lying nearby. If he'd only just cut one or two down... But that devil's left me with one tree standing and cleared the rest. Pachom seethed with anger. Oh, if I knew who did it, I'd show him a thing or two. For a long time, he racked his brains and finally concluded, It must be Semyon. It can't be anyone else. So off he went to search Semyon's place. But he found nothing, and all the two men did was swear at each other. Pachom was more convinced than ever that it was Semyon's work, and he lodged a complaint. The magistrate sat for ages debating the case and finally acquitted Semyon for lack of evidence. This incensed Pachom even more, and he had a stormy session with the village elder and the magistrates. You are hand in glove with the thieves, he protested. If you were honest men, you wouldn't let a thief like him off the hook. As a result, Pachom fell out with the magistrates, as well as his neighbors, who threatened to burn his cottage down. And so, although Pachom had plenty of leg room now, he felt that the commune was hemming him in. Around that time, rumors were in the air that many peasants were leaving to settle in new parts of the country. Pachom thought, I don't really need to go away, what with all that land of mine, but if some of the villagers were to go, there'd be more room for others. I could buy their land and make my estate bigger. Life would be easier then, but as things are, it's still too cramped here for my liking. One day, a peasant who was passing through stopped at Pachom's cottage. They let him stay the night and gave him food. Pachom asked where he was from, and the man replied that he had come from the south, from the other side of the Volga, where he had been working. Then he told how people from his own village had settled there, joined the commune, and had been allotted 25 acres each. The land is so fertile, he said. That rye grows as high as a horse, and it's so thick you can make a whole sheaf from only five handfuls. One peasant arrived with a kopeck and only his bare hands to work with, and now he has six horses and two cows. 
Pajon was terribly excited by this news. Why should I have to scrape a living cooped up here, he thought, when I could be leading a good life somewhere else? I could sell the land and cottage with the money I'd be able to build myself a house there and start a whole new farm. But here there's no room to breathe, and I get nothing but aggravation. I must go and find out what it's like for myself. When summer came, he was ready, and he set off. He went down the Volga to Samara by steamboat, then walked the remaining 300 miles to the new settlement, which was just as the visitor had described. All the men had plenty of space, each having been allotted 25 acres without charge and welcomed into the commune. Anyone who had the money could also buy as much of the finest freehold land as they wanted, at three rubles an acre. There was no limit. Towards autumn, after finding out all he needed to know, Pahom went home and started selling up. He sold the land at a profit, his home and all his cattle, resigned from the commune and waited until the spring, when he left with his family for the new settlement. 4. When he arrived with his family, Pachon managed to get himself on the register of a large village commune, having duly moistened the elders' throats. All was signed and sealed, and Pachon was granted a hundred acres, twenty for each member of his family in different fields, besides the use of the communal pasture. Then he put up some buildings and stocked his farm with cattle. The allotted land alone was three times as much as at home, and it was perfect for growing corn. He was ten times better off here, for he had plenty of arable land and pasturage, and he was able to keep as many cattle as he wanted. At first, while he was busy building and stocking up, everything seemed wonderful. But no sooner had he settled down to this new life than he began to feel cramped even here. During the first year, he had sowed wheat on the allotted land, and the crop had been excellent. But when he wanted to sow more wheat, he found he needed more land. The other land he had been allotted was not suitable for wheat. In the south, wheat is sown only on grass or on fallow land. They sow it for one or two years and then leave it fallow until the land is overgrown with feather grass again. This type of land was in great demand, and there wasn't enough to go round, so the people quarreled over it. The richer ones sowed their own, whilst the poorer ones had to mortgage theirs to merchants to pay their taxes. Pachom wanted to sow more wheat. So the following year, he rented some fields from a dealer for one year. He sowed a great deal of wheat and had a good crop. But the fields were a long way from the village, and the wheat had to be carted more than ten miles. Then Pachom noticed that some peasant farmers with large homesteads in the neighborhood were becoming very wealthy. What if I bought some freehold land and built myself a homestead like theirs, he wondered. Then everything would be within easy reach. And he tried to think how he could buy some. Pachom farmed the same way for three years, renting land and sowing wheat. They were good years. The crops were good and he was able to save some money. But Pachom grew tired of having to rent land year after year, of having to waste his time scrambling after it. Whenever good land came up for sale, the peasants would immediately fall over themselves to buy it, and it would all be gone before he could do anything. He was never quick enough, so he had no land for sowing his wheat. So in the third year, he went halves with a merchant in buying a plot of pasture land outright from some peasants. They had already plowed it when someone sued the peasants over it, and as a result, all their work was wasted. If it had been my land, Pachom thought, I wouldn't have been under an obligation to anyone, and I wouldn't have gotten into that mess. So Pachom tried to discover where to buy some freehold land. He came across a peasant who, having purchased some 1,300 acres, had then gone bankrupt 
and was selling the land off very cheaply. Pajon bargained with him, and after much haggling, they finally agreed upon 1,500 rubles, half cash down, half to be paid at a later date. The deal was all but signed and sealed when a passing merchant called at Pajon's to have his horses fed. They drank tea together and got into conversation. The merchant said that he was on his way back from the far-off land of the Bashkirs, where he'd bought some 13,000 acres for a mere thousand rubles. When Pahom questioned him further, the merchant told him, All I had to do was give the old men there a few presents, a hundred rubles worth of silk robes and carpets, a chest of tea, and vodka for anyone who wanted it. I managed to get the land for twenty kopecks an acre. He showed Pahom the title deeds. The land is near a river, and it's all beautiful grassy steppe. Pahom continued to ply him with questions. There's so much land that you couldn't walk round it all in a year. It all belongs to the Bashkirs. Yes, the people there are as stupid as sheep, and you can get land off them for practically nothing. Well, Pahom thought, why should I pay a thousand rubles for thirteen hundred acres and saddle myself with debt? To think what I could buy with the same money down there. Five. Pahom asked him how to get there, and as soon as he had said goodbye to the merchant, he prepared to leave. He left his wife behind and set off, taking a workman with him. First, they stopped off in town and bought a chest of tea, vodka, and other presents, just as the old merchant had advised. Then they traveled for miles and miles until, on the seventh day, they reached the Bashkir settlement. Everything was as the merchant had described. The people lived on the steppe, near a river in tents of thick felt. They neither plowed the soil nor ate bread, and their cattle and horses wandered in herds over the steppe. The foals were tethered behind the tents, and the mares brought over to them twice a day. These mares were milked, and from the milk, kumis was made. The women also made cheese from the kumis, and all the men seemed concerned with was drinking kumis and tea, eating mutton and playing their pipes. All of them were cheerful and well-fed, and they spent the whole summer idling about. The Bashkirs were very ignorant, knew no Russian, but they were kindly people. The moment they spotted Pahom, the Bashkirs streamed out of their tents and surrounded their visitor. An interpreter was found, and Pahom told him that he had come about some land. The Bashkirs were delighted and took Pahom off to one of the finest tents, where they made him sit on some rugs piled with cushions while they formed a circle and offered him tea and kumis. Then they slaughtered a sheep and fed him with mutton. Pahom fetched the presents from his cart, handed them round, and shared the tea out. The Bashkirs were delighted. For a while they talked away amongst themselves and then told the interpreter to translate. They want me to tell you, the interpreter said, that they've been taking a great liking to you, and that it's our custom to do all we can to please a guest and repay him for his gifts. You have given us presents, so please tell us if there is anything of ours that you would like so we can show you our gratitude. What I like most of all here, Pahom replied, is your land. Back home, there isn't enough to go around, and what's more, the soil is exhausted. But here you have plenty, and it looks very good. I've never seen soil like it. The interpreter translated, and then the Bashkirs went into a lengthy conference. Although Pahom did not understand, he could see how cheerful they were, laughing and shouting. Then they all became quiet, glanced at Pahom, and the interpreter continued. I'm to tell you that they would be only too pleased to let you have as much land as you like in return for your kindness. All you have to do is point it out, and it will be yours. Then they conferred again. 
started arguing about something. Pahom asked what it was, and the interpreter told him. Some of them were saying they should first consult the elder about the land. They can't do anything without his permission, but some of the others say it's not necessary. 6. While the Bashkirs were arguing, a man in a fox fur cap suddenly came into the tent, whereupon they all became quiet and stood up. It's the elder, the interpreter explained. Pahom immediately fetched his best robe and presented it with five pounds of tea to the elder, who accepted the gifts and then sat in the place of honor. The Bashkirs immediately started telling him something. After listening for a while, the elder motioned with his head for them to be quiet, and then spoke to Pahom in Russian. Well now, he said, it's all right. Choose whatever land you like. There's plenty of it. How can I just go and take whatever I like? Pahom wondered. I must have it all signed and sealed somehow. Now they tell me it's mine, but who knows? They might change their minds. So he told them, Thank you for your kind words. Yes, you do have a great deal of land, but I need only a little. However, I would like to be sure which will be mine, so couldn't it be measured and made over to me by some sort of contract? Our lives are in God's hands, and although you good people are willing to give me the land now, it's possible your children might want it back again. What you say is true, said the elder. We can have a contract drawn up. Pahom said, I've heard that you made some land over to a merchant not long ago, together with the title deeds. I would like you to do the same with me. The elder understood. That's no problem, he said. We have a clerk here, and we can ride into town and have the documents properly witnessed and signed. But what about the price? Pahom asked. We have a set price. A thousand rubles a day. Pahom did not understand. What kind of rate is that? A day? How many acres would that be? We don't reckon your way. We sell by the day. However much you can walk round in one day will be yours, and the price is a thousand rubles a day. Pahom was amazed. Well, a man can walk round a lot of land in one day, he said. The elder burst out laughing. Well, all of it will be yours, he replied. But there's one condition. If you don't return to your starting point the same day, your money will be forfeited. But how can I mark where I've been? We'll all go to whatever place you select and wait until you've completed your circuit. You must take a spade, dig a hole at every turning, and leave the turf piled up. Afterwards, we will go from hole to hole with a plow. You may make as large a circuit as you like, only you must be back at your starting point by sunset. All the land you can walk round will be yours. Pahom was absolutely delighted. An early start was decided on, and after talking for a while, they drank kumis, ate some mutton, and then had tea. This went on until nightfall. Then the Bashkirs made up a feather bed for Pahom and left. They promised to be ready to ride out to the chosen spot before sunrise. 7. Pahom lay down on the feather bed, but the thought of all that land kept him awake. Tomorrow, he thought, I shall mark out a really large stretch. In one day, I can easily walk 35 miles. The days are long now. Just think how much land I'll have from walking that distance. I'll sell the poorer bits, or let it to the peasants. I'll take the best from myself and farm it. I'll have two ox plows and hire a couple of laborers to work them. Yeah, I'll cultivate about 150 acres and let the cattle graze the rest. Pahom did not sleep a wink that night, and dozed off only just before dawn. The moment he fell asleep, he had a dream. He seemed to be lying in the same tent, could hear someone roaring with laughter outside. 
Wondering who was laughing like that, he got up, went out, and saw that same Bashkir elder sitting there, holding his sides and rolling about in fits of laughter. He went closer and asked, What are you laughing at? And then he saw that it wasn't the elder at all, but the merchant who had called on him a few days before and told him about the land. And just as Pachom asked him, Have you been here long? The merchant turned into the peasant who had come up from the Volga and visited him at home. And then Pachum saw that it wasn't the peasant but the devil himself, with horns and hoofs, sitting there and laughing his head off, while before him lay a barefoot man wearing only shirt and trousers. When Pachum took a closer look, he saw that the man was dead, and that it was himself. Pachum woke up in a cold sweat. Things one dreams about, he thought. Then he looked round and saw that it was getting light at the open door. Dawn was breaking. I must go and wake him, he thought. It's time to start. So Pachom got up, roused the workman, who was sleeping in the cart, ordered him to harness the horse and went off to wake the Bashkirs. It's time to go out on the step and measure the land, he said. The Bashkirs got up, assembled, then the elder came and joined them. They drank some more kumis and offered Pachom tea, but he was impatient to be off. If we're going, let's go. It's time. 8. So the Bashkirs got ready and left, some on horses, others in carts. They came out onto the open steppe just as the sun was rising. They climbed a small hill, called a Shikhan in Bashkir. Then the Bashkirs got out of their carts, dismounted from their horses, and gathered in one place. The elder went over to Pachom and pointed. Look, he said, that's all ours, as far as the eye can see. Choose any part you like. Pachom's eyes lit up, for the land was all virgin soil, flat as the palm of one's hand, black as poppy seed, with different kinds of grass growing breast-high in the hollows. The elder took off his fox fur cap and put it on the ground. Let this be the marker. This is the starting point to which you must return. All the land you can walk around will be yours. Pachom took out his money, placed it on the cap, took off his outer coat so that he was wearing only a sleeveless undercoat, tightened his belt below the waist, and stuffed a small bag of bread inside his shirt. Then he tied a flask of water to the belt, pulled up his boots, took the spade from his workmen, and was ready to leave. He could not decide which direction to take at first, as the land was so good everywhere. Then he decided, it's all good land, so I'll walk towards the sunrise. He turned to the east, stretching himself as he waited for the sun to appear above the horizon. There's no point in wasting time, he thought and it's easier walking while it's still cool. The moment the sun's rays came flooding over the horizon, Pachom put the spade on one shoulder and walked out onto the steppe. Pachom walked neither quickly nor slowly. When he had gone about three-quarters of a mile, he stopped, dug a hole, and piled the pieces of turf high on top of each other so that they were easily visible. The stiffness had now gone from his legs, and he lengthened his stride. A little further on, and he stopped again and dug another hole. Pachom guessed that he had covered about three miles. He was beginning to feel warmer, so he took off his undercoat, flung it over his shoulder, and walked another three miles. It was hot, and a look at the sun reminded him it was time for breakfast. Well, that's the first stretch completed, he thought. But there are four to a day, and it's too early to start turning. I must take these boots off, though. So he sat down, took off his boots, Stuck them behind his belt and moved on. The going was easy now, and he thought, I'll do another three miles and then turn left. The land's so beautiful here. It would be a pity to miss out on any of it. 
The further I go, the better the land gets. So for a while, he carried straight on. And when he looked back, the hill was just barely visible, and the people on it looked like black ants. He could just glimpse something that glinted in the sun. Well, thought Pachom, I've walked enough of this direction. I should be turning now. Besides, I'm stewing in this heat and terribly thirsty. So he stopped, dug a large hole, piled up the turf, untied his flask, drank, and then turned a sharp left. On and on he walked. The grass was higher here, and it was very hot. Pachom began to feel tired. He glanced at the sun and saw that it was noon. Well, he thought, I must have a little rest. So he stopped, sat down, and had some bread and water. He did not stretch out, though, thinking, once I lie down, I'll fall asleep. After a few minutes, he carried on. At first it was easy. The food had given him strength, but by now it was extremely hot, and he began to feel sleepy. Still, he kept going and thought of the proverb, A moment's pain can be a lifetime's gain. He had walked a long way in the same direction, and was just about to turn left when he spotted a lush hollow and decided it would be a pity to lose it. What a good place for growing flax, he thought. So he carried straight on, till he had walked right around the low-lying meadows, dug a hole on the other side, and then he turned the second corner. Pachom looked back at the hill. It was shimmering in the heat, and through the haze, it was difficult to see all the people there. They were at least ten miles away. Well, thought Pachom, I've made those sides too long. This one has to be shorter. So he started the third side, quickening his step. He looked at the sun and saw that it was already halfway to the horizon. But he had completed only about one mile of the third side. The starting point was still ten miles away. No, he thought. Although it will make the land a bit lopsided, I must take the shortest way back. It's no good trying to grab too much. I've quite enough already. Pachom hastily dug another hole and headed straight for the hill. 9. On the way back, Pachom found the going tough. The heat had exhausted him. His bare feet were cut and bruised and his legs were giving way. He wanted to rest, but this was out of the question. He would never get back by sunset. The sun waits for no man and was sinking lower and lower. Oh, he wondered. Have I blundered, trying to take too much? What if I'm not back in time? He looked towards the hill, then at the sun. The hill was far off. The sun was close to the horizon. But Pachom struggled on. Although it was very hard, he walked faster and faster. On and on he went. But there was still a long way to go. He started running and threw away his coat, Boots, flask, cap, keeping only the spade which he used for leaning on. Oh dear, he thought. I've been too greedy. Now I've ruined it. I'll never get back by sunset. His fear made him only more breathless. On he ran, his shirt soaking and his trousers clinging to him. His throat was parched. His lungs were working like a blacksmith's bellows. His heart beat like a hammer and his legs did not seem to be his. He felt that they were breaking. Pachom was terrified and thought, All oh, this strain will be the death of me. Although he feared death, he could not stop. If I stop now, after coming all this way, well, they'd call me an idiot. So on he ran until he was close enough to hear the Bashkirs yelling and cheering him on. Their shouts spurred him on all the more, so he summoned his last ounce of strength and kept running. But by now the sun was almost touching the horizon. Veiled in mist, it was large and blood-red. It was about to set, but although it did not have very far to sink, it was no distance to the starting point either. Pachom could see the people on the hill now, 
waving their arms and urging him on. He could see the fox fur cap on the ground with the money on it. He could see the elder sitting there with his arms pressed to his sides, and Pachom remembered his dream. I have plenty of land now, but will God let me live to enjoy it? No, I'm finished. I'll never make it. Pachom looked at the sun. It had reached the earth now. Half of its great disk had dipped below the horizon. With all the strength he had left, Pachom lurched forward with his full weight, hardly able to move his legs quickly enough to stop him falling. He reached the hill, and everything suddenly became dark. He looked round and saw that the sun had set. Pachom groaned. All that effort had been in vain, he thought. He wanted to stop when he heard the Bashkirs still cheering him on, and he realized that from where he was at the bottom of the hill, the sun had apparently set, but not for those on top. Pahom took a deep breath and rushed up the hill, which was still bathed in sunlight. When he reached the top, he saw his cap with the elder sitting by it, holding his sides and laughing his head off. Then he remembered the dream, and he groaned. His legs gave way. He fell forward and managed to reach the cap with his hands. Oh, well done, exclaimed the elder. That's a lot of land you've earned yourself. Pachom's workmen ran up and tried to lift his master. The blood flowed from his mouth. Pachom was dead. The Bashkirs clicked their tongues sympathetically. Pachom's workmen picked up the spade, dug a grave for his master, which was six feet from head to heel, just the right size, and buried him. Wow, so that was kind of a, an intense story. Uh, kind of sad, but again, very Tolstoyan with a, a very kind of straightforward moral at the end of it. How much land does a man really need? Well, I guess just enough to be buried in. <laughs> uh, this is uh, very much in line with many of Tolstoy's later held beliefs. So you got to remember that this story was written after his uh, great epics, War and Peace, Anna Karenina, and this is around the time when he started to reject the very format of the novel itself, finding uh, the long, drawn-out stories and kind of intense, complicated plots to be counterproductive to what he wanted to do as a writer and as a thinker at that time in Russia. And again, he was mainly focused, at this point of his life at least, he was mainly focused on the uneducated, on the peasants, whom he thought were the most moral of us all. And he thought that the shorter his stories, the better. The more direct and obvious the moral, the more impact that they were likely to have on the people of Russia. Um, this is a bit funny coming from someone who wrote one of the longest novels of all time and who, at the end of his life, said that they really weren't worth the paper that they were being printed on. But it is his strange and sometimes radical ideas that made him very popular. Um, a sect grew up around him called the Tolstoyans, of which he was proud to say he was not a part of. But nevertheless, it got him excommunicated from the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, he was a pariah in some ways, despite his intense popularity. And one wonders what he would have had to say, what he would have uh, done in reaction to the Soviet takeover had he lived that long. Unfortunately, uh, Tolstoy dies in 1910 inside the apartment of the station master at a, uh, a train station about a day's journey south of his estate at Yasnaya Polyana. This train station, uh, it's called Astapova, has become something of a, um, a pilgrimage route for Tolstoyans or, or really just any fans of Tolstoy in general. And uh, it seems that he had become 
something of a hermit. He wanted to go on a final long journey, having renounced his possessions, his family. It was a, a very kind of Christ-like gesture. And unfortunately, he didn't get very far. He died fairly soon after leaving. He was suffering from pneumonia, and he had a couple other um, health issues. He was fairly old. Um, but luckily, he left behind a whole magnificent corpus of works and um, some very interesting religious and philosophical ideas. And what we saw today with how much land does a man need is one of Tolstoy's most often stressed virtues, and that is the renunciation of of uh, physical objects, including land. And you'd think, actually, the communists would kind of grab hold of them, but they didn't. They really, a lot of them really did not care for Tolstoy. And during the Soviet period, uh, many of his works were actually burned. Um, that may be partly because uh, he was accused of hypocrisy quite often. This is a man who preached the virtues of getting rid of all your worldly possessions, and yet he lived on a, an absolutely beautiful, an enormous estate. Yes, Nyapoliana, um, just a bit out of Moscow in, um, in the outskirts of a city called Tula. And he had a whole range of serfs that worked for him, worked the land for him. And yes, he did He did uh, occasionally don uh, a peasant's outfit and would go out and work with them. But the old joke goes that he would always be wearing silk underwear. Because although he liked to wear the peasants' clothing, he couldn't stand to wear their undergarments. So, uh, make of that what you will. Okay, well, I don't think we have time for a musical break in this episode, unfortunately. But you know what? I think it was worth it because, you know, it was a long story, but it was a good story. And I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed reading it to you. Um, I'd like to remind everybody that we're brought to you by Theraflu. Um, and... I'd like to encourage everybody to go out and get some Theraflu if they don't have it or if they've never tried it. Oh, if you've never tried it, I'm so jealous because that first time I had Theraflu, it just really blew my mind. So it's about that time and uh, we're going to let you go. We've actually, we've, we've run over time now. Um, it's well after four and I'm definitely ready to, to head home and, and catch some Z's as the kids say. So, uh, yeah, this has been Delwar Malarkey with A Wound Winkle in Time. Thanks so much for, for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place, and remember, sweet dreams, everybody.